Hi folks, this is Jack Spirit with another edition of the Survival Park Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is November 5th, 2013, and it's episode 1241 of the Survival Podcast. And it's a Tuesday. Today we're going to talk about what kind of abundance could we create in, in, in society if we took the concepts that I talk about with permaculture and voided them of any hippie connotations and things like that and saw them as something bigger than just how to grow food. What kind of abundance could be created in spite of what I call modern self-destruction? When we look around at society, and I'm talking about all levels, government, uh, environmental, uh, corporate, uh, and just general society as a whole, the way people live throughout the develop and developing worlds now, um, you, you come to a conclusion that the human race doesn't want to keep going, that they want misery, that they want a, a great catastrophic event, that they are uh, hell-bent on creating their own demise economically, resource-wise, um, population density in certain area-wise, uh, resource utilization. I mean, whatever you look at, uh, it, it, it seems very clear uh, politics, liberty, whatever it is that's a value, that's true wealth, seems to be being destroyed. Could that be re reversed? And if so, how? Because I don't believe there's a political solution to this. But if, if enough people started doing it and demonstrating it, what could it lead to? And not, again, not just about growing food, though that's a huge part of it. We'll talk about all that more in just a bit. Let me go ahead and take care of our sponsors first. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Survival Gear Bags, an example of an entrepreneur that just said, I'm going to do it, and did. Kelly John Doe started that company right in the Survival Podcast forum. He was in the fulfillment business, started doing some group buys on some stuff, and said, hey, maybe we can make a business of this. Took it to another level, and right now, if you want great gear and great bags to put that gear in, check out survivalgearbags.com. If you are a member of the uh, Member Support Brigade, you'll also get 10% off on all your purchases. Check them out at survivalgearbags.com. Next up today, backyard food production. I'm going to talk a lot about food production today. I'm going to expand it beyond that. I'm going to come at permaculture from a different standpoint than, uh, than I ever have before really today with the philosophy of troubleshooting and an understanding of why it is survivalism. But you know what? When it comes to surviving, you got to eat. If you want to turn that backyard of yours into a food production machine, Check out Marjorie Wildcraft's DVD series called Growing Your Groceries. And uh, the best way to get there is go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on her banner in the right-hand margin. She does a discount for members of the Support Brigade, but everybody from the Survival Podcast gets a discount. You just get a bigger one if you're a Brigade member. So make sure you use the link that's available at the survivalpodcast.com. You can find a link in today's episode, 1241, or you can just use the banner in the right-hand margin. Sponsors of the day always have links in the daily show notes, just for your knowledge there. So uh, next up, I do want to talk to you guys real quick about what's going on with Permaethos. Um, you guys probably heard pretty much all quiet on the Permaethos front. We did just recently meet with a landowner who was interested in selling part of his land. It's not going to work. Um, we're looking at actually working in a, a kind of a combined uh, resources way 
with uh, Josiah Wallingford, who's my intern, transitioning as his internship ends uh, in, in the spring next year into kind of a project manager for Permaethos, and Xavier Hawk working with us as a consultant and figuring out how to do that. Joe's actually uh, window shopping for land, and uh, as we get into uh, 2014, we'll get real serious about finding land. Uh, I need to have Joe actually start going through all of the investor profiles and putting together our initial team of investors to start doing some conference calls and discussions about where we go from here and some very important decisions that are going to be made. I bring this up today because I am kicking around the idea of making at least the part of Perma Ethos that is designed for people to be leasees and have a place um, off-grid or at least somewhat off-grid. We have some ways that we could do that and make it work in Texas. We have some things that could be done with uh, some power uh, storage and generation by the main facility. I don't know if we're going to do that or not. I don't want to. I'll, I'll put it to you that way. I don't want to. But the more I think about it, the more it might solve a lot of problems. And, and I'll, I'll save that for later. Um, I know it might cost us some people uh, as investors or residents, but it doesn't mean we can't make it work. And making it work and getting one established and proving it is probably more important than holding our breath to try to do it right. There's just a lot of things that a state tells you you have to do, even a decent state like Texas, when you're on grid that don't apply to you when you're off grid. Um, and using a hybrid model with a leased, leased uh, area, it's not a subdivision. It's one plot of land. It's owned by one entity. Everybody that's there is kind of just there as a guest in some ways. Um, just a lot of problems would go away, and it might, you know, require some creativity. But maybe that's the way to go. If uh, you want to know more about Permaethos or discuss it, get on over to permaethos.com. What I'm going to do over there, probably not today because I have to. Uh, I'll talk about what I have to do today in just a second. But I'm probably going to throw the Buddy Press platform on uh, Permaethos so that people can start building community and groups and discussions beyond just when I blog or post something over there. So uh, that'll probably happen this week. So keep your eyes out for that. All right, with that wrapped up, let's go ahead and uh, get into the main topic of today's show. Um, of course, the year 1241, episode 1241, little uh, history segment. Uh, everything you're going to hear about today has to do with the Mongols, and there's something interesting with it. One is how far they've come. In uh, March 19th of 1241, uh, the Mongols invaded Poland, and they overwhelmed the feudal Polish armies and uh, began to plunder the, uh, the abandoned city of Krakow. Uh, the Mo then in April 9th, uh, the Mongols under the command of Bradir Khan and Orda Khan defeat the feudal public, uh, Polish nobility, including the Knights Templar. Uh, on April 11th, uh, the Mongols uh, end up invading um, Hungary. And this is battles the last major event in the Ma Mongol invasion of Europe. If you take a look at a globe sometime and how far Mongolia and China are from Poland and how close Poland is to places like you know, France and Germany and even England, you realize how far the Mongols came and, and, and how successful their, their wars of conquest were. But also you see something begin to happen here. In many ways, these battles represent the high tide line of the Mongol Empire. That at some point, that an empire that no matter how effective, no matter how ruthless, 
that when it extends too far, eventually it reaches a high tide mark. And there's only one place for a tide to go after a high tide mark. There's a lesson there, one that you know you'll see as we continue this, that many societies failed to learn. Many societies failed to learn that that lesson, and maybe maybe we're failing to learn it right now. Anyway, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Again, I'm coming at permaculture today from a different standpoint. Usually, when I do a show on permaculture, I'm talking about well, how do you install a system? How does it work? Why is it better than a, a conventional agricultural system or, or what have you? Today, I want to come at it from a philosophical standpoint, and I want to come off on it with a way that you'll understand how it applies to business, uh, personal relationships, building a community, creating redundancy in your life as a survivalist beyond food, uh, with things like energy, and just with the ability to adapt, improvise, and overcome. Um, I, I want to put it to you this way. If I wanted to sum up permaculture into one sentence... I would say it's a system where we take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children and do so while not harming others, not harming natural systems, and in doing so we generate sufficient surplus for it to work. Which is, of course, me just jamming the, the prime directive of permaculture and the three primary ethics of permaculture into one big jumbly sentence. But I want you to think about that for a minute. I, I want you to take a second And instead of just focusing on solutions, let's go and be in touch with problems. I want you to think for a moment about everything that gives you pause, concern, fear, anxiety in life. National debt, politicians taking liberties, uh, concerns of what would happen if the, if the lights went out for a month or a week even. You know, if, I mean, a week in a place is not that bad, but a week, you know, most of the nation for a week, how, how bad could that be? Uh, warfare, uh, disease, pandemic, epidemic, whatever it is that made you first decide, look, we need to do something beyond being, you know, completely unprepared and just going through life expecting that everything will be okay. Whatever awakens you or after you awakened continues to, to make you feel concerned. Uh, or those of you that have gotten to a place of a lot of security, take a step back for a second and think about those things and realize that no matter how much security you have, there's probably still things that concern you, and, and be in touch with that for a minute. Be in touch with whatever it is that makes you realize, you know, there could be problems. Now, as you start thinking about how you would deal with those problems and going through basic redundancies and the power goes out, we have a generator, and that gets us by for a week, and we have that much fuel to make that work, and we have a battery system and all. It just let that all go and start thinking more along the lines of how would you how would you create a lifestyle where if most of those things happened, unless you were directly impacted, right? So if there's a if there's a pandemic of uh, a new strain of flu that has a lot of uh, lethality, a lot of hospitalization and things like that. You don't have to get the flu for it to impact you. Uh, you can be on your little place somewhere, not exposed to other people that have an illness, but in most situations, you know, your income or supply lines or your resources are dependent upon the rest of the world. Okay? And because of that, even if you don't get the flu... You still have a problem. If we had a major power outage that lasted a month throughout 50% of the United States and you lived in part of the 50% that still had power 
it's not like it's not going to affect you at all if you're just living life like normal. What do you think it would do to the economy? What do you think it would do to the stability in government? What excuses do you think government would come up with after that happened to take liberty away that would affect both the people who did and did not have power? Right. So whatever you can think of, even when you're not directly affected by it, it affects you if you're living life the way most people are today, dependent on other things. So if you were going to develop a philosophy, not a thing in of itself, like A, B, C, D, put the bricks together, make a house, but a guiding philosophy of your life that would over time lead you to build a lifestyle that would be as immune to those things as possible. Because again, we all live on this big round ball circling the sun at the you know level of the third planet with oxygen and nitrogen atmospheres. And we all are connected whether we like it or not. So you can't be completely immune. But if you wanted the greatest level of redundancy and resiliency and self-sufficiency in your life, what philosophy would you lead you there? And now I want you to think about this again. A philosophy where you take responsibility for your own existence. Let's just stop there for a second. Think about that. Take responsibility for your own existence. Is that not survivalism in and of itself? On the first words in the permaculture doctrine, take responsibility for your existence and for that of your children. Okay. So the first thing you, you, you get out of that is I've got to take responsibility for myself and my children. Not the way society has led you to believe that. You get a MasterCard and a Visa and a good job and benefits and you get a house in the suburbs and a golf club membership and an SUV for the wife to cart the kids around in and now you're a responsible grown-up. No, no, no. I didn't say take responsibility to make sure you get a bunch of stuff, but for your existence. For your existence. Existence includes your ability to feed and clothe yourself, house yourself, provide yourself with water, have energy, take care of yourself when you're not healthy, keep yourself healthy, and to do the same things for your children. So that's where we start. And we have to do so while not hurting anybody else. Can't harm people and call it permaculture. Can't do it. Can't victimize people. If someone else is suffering somewhere, not because that's the way it is, but specifically to provide me a resource. It's not permaculture. Now, I can't fix the world. And there's places with suffering and wailing and gnashing of teeth. But if the resource I'm receiving is directly dependent upon that suffering, specifically if there's any way to acquire it otherwise... Not permaculture. But I want you to think about it totally different today because that starts to lead us into a place we should never go with permaculture, which is politics. You're a victimizing Westerner or whatever. Just think about it this way. If I'm not going to harm people, what principle totally outside of the world of permaculture, unless we bring it in, which we should, does that, does that stand up? What, what principle of philosophy in life is don't harm people. How about the non-aggression principle? The non-aggression principle, cornerstone of libertarianism. I am not to take from you, nor to harm you. I'm not. If I'm not hurting anybody, I'm not committing any kind of a crime. 
Everybody should leave me alone as long as I'm not hurting anybody else. But as soon as I begin to cause harm to another individual, I've violated that principle of non-aggression. And maybe not a state, but something should be done to stop it. If you are walking down the street and you see somebody punching an old lady in the face, and you're any kind of a man, or a woman for that matter, with any ability to do anything, you don't go, well, that's against the law, so the police will take care of it. right? You take an action. Maybe that first action is calling 911 while intervening, while yelling. Maybe you grab the son of a bitch and put his head into the ground. But one way or another, when you witness that, most human beings in their hearts and souls and spirits are compelled, something must be done. And the fact that we live in a society today where things like that happen and people walk right on by and pretend not to see it tells you how sick we are as human beings. We are a sick society, spiritually, mentally, and physically sick. And you know that's true. And you might think, well, I'm not. Well, maybe you're not. It doesn't mean society isn't. How many times have we seen something like somebody getting shot? You see a security camera pick it up. Somebody shoots another guy. He hits the ground. The guy that shoots him runs off. And people walk by like nothing happened. Thankfully, there's almost always somebody that does something. And it's due to that concept that we know intrinsically one human should not harm another. So we have to take responsibility for ourselves without harming others. And we can't harm natural systems. In permaculture, this is simply care of the earth. We can't break down the very system that provides everything we need. So if you're wondering how this solves your problems instead of gives you a bunch of rules to follow, start thinking it through right here. The reason I can't harm the earth, I can't just go start plowing up a field and doing conventional agriculture, is because I will degrade the land over time, and that which was providing for me will then begin to take from me and take from others. When I'm bringing in all those inputs, all those chemical fertilizers, it's not just that they're bad. It's that it takes more energy to get them out of something else and bring them to this place and put them here than the land will produce. It's a net energy loss. And only because of the, the blessing and the curse that is fossil fuels can that happen. That could never be done with human labor. The system would fall apart without fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are a wonderful thing, but we're, we're totally wasting the value they represent. There are basically two great dyings in our history that we know of that are the, the cause of most fossil fuels. It's not dinosaurs, folks. It's plankton and swamps. When a mass extinction event occurred is when most of those were created. Now, I'm not trying to save polar bears by telling you to carpool. I think that's nonsense, and most of you know that. It doesn't mean that, it, that, that this resource is ours to squander without having anything to share for, show for it, and that's what we're doing. And even with something as simple as you know, getting you know, nitrates from a byproduct, from natural gas, and moving that you know, 10,000 miles to spread it on a field, that energy audit doesn't work. It doesn't work. And right now, we're at a point in society where our technology has con you know, collided with an abundant resource at such a perfect way that we can cheat and get away with it for now. It won't go on forever. 
I'm not telling you peak oil will have us all living without any energy in 10 years. People that believe that are batshit crazy. It said that in my, my science book when I was in seventh grade. It said we had 30 years of oil till there was none left in my science book in seventh grade. It's been 30 years since I was in science in seventh grade, folks. I don't know if you've looked around yet, but there's plenty of oil left. But it doesn't mean it will always be here. When will it run out? I don't know. When will it get very, very costly extract? I don't know. How long can we do it? I don't know. But let's say that we can, between oil and natural gas and other types of things that we can do, that we have 200 years. We'll all be dead by the time anybody has to deal with the consequences of it. What right do we have to squander it anyway? If we're harming our natural systems, we are destroying our own futures. If you look down, you might be looking at carpet or the, the floor of your car or a tile floor, but sooner or later, if you went through whatever is in the way, you'd get to earth, to soil, and everything that supports us comes from there. And then the last thing is generating a sufficient surplus for it to work. We have to be able to create in our systems enough abundance that the system itself is sustainable. If we don't, we're mining something from somewhere else, and eventually every mine goes dry. So that's, if you start thinking about that, that way, you start to realize, this isn't just how I would grow trees and put in some hugel culture mounds in a pond. Though those are very, very real forms of wealth. But this is a guiding philosophy. How can I live and how could society live in a way which would create systems where no one has to suffer if they choose to put some effort out? And how can I build a business that way that has nothing to do with agriculture? You say permaculture is only about growing food. Think about that. Let's say I wanted to create a business like a podcast. And I wanted to educate and entertain people. How could I run a podcast that way? Well, I would, I would do a show that never advocated the, advocating the harming of another individual unless that other individual was someone doing harm to someone else. I would advocate personal responsibility, morality, and ethics. And I would teach people about that. I would teach people to feed themselves and feed their communities and build society, build society at an individual voluntary level instead of a government level. And I would return my surplus. When somebody needed help, I would use the, the, the social capital I built to help them. When I got an opportunity to make money, sometimes instead of making money, I would turn it over to my listeners in the form of some sort of a, a brokered deal for them. I would build a survival podcast. That's what I would do. If I wanted to build a podcast on permaculture principles, I would build the survival podcast exactly the way I've done it. Don't think I couldn't build a business that did computer programming this way. Or consult with telecommunications companies this way. If I can't do that, then I can't build a business that isn't dependent on credit. Okay? And not just credit to get across some bridges, but continuously depending on a revolving line of credit. I can't build a business where employees want to work there, only where they feel they have no other choice. 
And I can't build a business that truly builds value. I can only build a business that takes value. That's the, that's, the, that's the only alternative. So if you're telling me I can't build a business that way, then I can't build a business that takes care of people, creates value, and doesn't become dependent on others, others for their very existence. That's not a business. It's not a real business. I could build a school this way. I could create a town that ran on these principles. Especially if we, if, if others would abide by the principle of not interfering with us. That would be kind of important. And if they won't, then I have to do the best I can with what I have. Because I am required to take responsibility for my own existence. I don't get to wait until somebody lets me. Now, it's true that permaculture is best known for growing food. But maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe it shouldn't be. The reason it's true is because first and foremost, we all have to eat. It is the number one thing that creates people's poverty and enslavement in the world is their need to eat. You know, healthcare is almost, is directly proportional to good quality food. There are some things that happen to people where they get sick and need medical care that are not dietary related, at least not directly. But the amount of medical treatment necessary in the world is largely uh, from two things, a lack of food or an excess of poor quality food. So the most fundamental human need is to eat. Shelter is much easier to improvise than food. I mean, if you can figure out any way to stay warm and dry, you you, you kind of have shelter skinned. It's not the way I want to live, but it can be done fairly reasonably. Um, energy is abundant all around us. It's only in the past few hundred years that we've come to expect that there would be a little smiley face thing that you could shove something into and run a computer or a hair dryer or a curling iron or a television set with. So it's not required. It's it's a luxury I don't want to fully give up. I'm, I'm telling you that blatantly, honestly. But it's not required for our existence. Food is. The other reason that, that permaculture is best known for food production and natural systems that create abundance that you that you can pick and eat or you know cut down for for timber resources at certain points is because you can see it. It's very, very material, and it's very, very obvious, and it's very impactful. When you take a brown field, like this place that I moved into, and in one year get it as far as it is where I'm looking out and seeing green right now. I mean, this place is still so in its infancy. It has so far to go. So much needs to be done. But what's already there? If someone stood here in January of this year and stood here now, they'd go, holy crap. Now give it five years. Give it five years where there's berries and fruits and nuts and animals roaming around and everything's green and it looks totally, it, it, it works and you can see that it works in a relatively short period of time. Even in our microwave society where people expect things to be done in one minute or less, five years to transform an entire ecosystem into something that's beautiful and abundant and valuable, that still meets the time commitment necessary for people to go, oh, that works. 
Now, some people are so asleep, they go, eh, it's green. They don't get it. That's fine. But the reason it's most known for food is because you can see it. And it hits that primal desire and need. People, even people that are clueless in general, really know that their security is in food. They might take it for granted, but they really know that. And it's one of the first things they worry about. Why do you think one of the biggest industries in preparedness is selling long-term food? It's something that anybody who just stops for a second and thinks about realizes. But what I say maybe it shouldn't be, what's a bigger problem, feeding ourselves or meeting our energy demands? And permaculture gives us a lot of ways to meet and reduce our energy needs. Construction technologies that require less energy to give us the environment we already expect, that, we, that we've created in modern society. The number one thing in the way of them is government, not money. Government. We could be building earth chips like crazy in the places that make the most sense. We could be doing other technologies, like geodesic domes using thick, lightweight, concrete construction materials. But it's government regulations that get in the way. Even where you're allowed to do it, the, the price of housing has been increased exponentially through government involvement in the mortgage process. And a, a structure that doesn't qualify for the type of loans being done is no longer marketable because the housing has been increased in cost ridiculously. A house shouldn't cost what it does today. It shouldn't. And I can prove it. I can prove it to you. There's little difference between a three-bedroom, two-bath home on a quarter acre in Texas and a three-bedroom, two-bath home on a quarter acre in New Jersey. You can say location, location, location all you want, but when it comes down to it, they use the same materials, the same resources, and they're in the same country. The one in New Jersey will cost three to four times more. Because the entire economy in New Jersey is based on complete fictitiousness, and the economy of Texas is based on partial, fictitious, partial fictitiousness. But both of them are overpriced for where they should be. The devaluing of money is part of it, but the subsidization of mortgages, just like it's done to the cost of education, has jacked up the price. If that didn't happen, and the regulations got out of our face and you didn't have people whining because the house doesn't look like everybody else's house with multiple layers of government at county and local getting in the way, we could, we could have done this a long time ago. We know what to do to build these houses. And it's not just an earth ship or not just an earth contact structure. There's lots of technologies to do this. We know how to do it. So we can do that. But I think what's actually more powerful about permaculture is the fact that I can walk into a business today analyze their business, and go, here's all your problems. Here's all your solutions to those problems. And I could do that completely because of permaculture thinking. I could do it with a bank. I could do it with a, with a company that was building cars or car parts. And if they would follow it and be willing to take the backward steps necessary sometimes to go forward, it would work. In other words, we have a philosophy and a way of thinking that can completely transform a system that's riddled with failures into a system that creates abundance. And it doesn't matter if the system is manufacturing or agriculture or consulting or finance. 
It's in its infancy, so most people don't really understand it yet. That's why that's why we stick with food. And it's this is also why most people do not understand permaculture. The guy that was interested in possibly selling some of his property to us uh, basically wanted uh, nine hundred thousand dollars, and he wanted to continue to have forty percent control of the property. That alone doesn't work. But as we started talking about permaculture, this guy wasn't good at listening. He really wasn't. He said it several times, and he was really telling the truth. And he didn't understand permaculture because he'd be like, well, you know, I don't know if it's permaculture that we should go with or like aquaponics. I mean, well, aquaponics is a system within permaculture. It's a technique. Didn't get it. See, this is we have a society today where we've taken every discipline and broken it down into very specific um, levels and layers and pie pieces where engineering gives us mechanical engineering, aeronautical engineering, physical engineering, but we lose sight of the discipline of engineering as a total system, right? So aerospace engineering, you know, and civil engineering of roads are very, very different, but at their core, they're both engineering, and it's the way of thinking that makes engineering valid. And there's specific systemic knowledge that makes a specialized engineer. And that works. But because of that, we can no longer back up and see the, the entire discipline of engineering for what it is. So we hear permaculture and we want to make it aerospace engineering or mechanical engineering or more accurately, like organic farming. Or it's just organic farming with things that come back every year. And we, 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 we fail, the, the average person that listens to this show even fails to comprehend it's a system of design. It's a design science. It's engineering with ethics. It's engineering of the structure of relationships, whether they be interpersonal relationships or interspecies relationships. Whether that be the, the relationship between water and earth as water moves across it, or the relationship between a community garden and the people who will be responsible for maintaining it. Or the relationship between a customer and a supplier. These are all relationships, and they all create an edge. They all create an edge. Which is a huge permaculture principle. Abundance is always on the edge. When I began to understand this, I realized what this really was. In a lot of ways, it's libertarianism. I'll get there. Trust me. You have to trust me. <laughs> it's almost anarchism. It's, it's libertarianism, almost anarchism, really. Um, but the edge. So when I was explaining edge at the Earthworks workshop, we, you know, Nick, Nick Bertner was there and he was explaining like, you're looking at an edge right here. Here's an aquatic system coming to a land-based system and all. And, and, and I was like, let's take this further and think about it. So out in that lake, okay, where you just see flat water way out in the middle, you might see a guy out there in a boat one day and he'll be fishing, bouncing a lure up and down, catching fish. You think he's fishing in the middle of the lake. Well, if you know anything about fishing, he's not fishing in the middle of the lake. There's something there that's making those fish Go there. For instance, if it was sand bass or white bass, it might be a hump. So maybe all the water in that area is about 42 feet deep, but then there's this hump, this little hill under the water you can't see, but your sonar can see. It comes up to about 28 feet and goes back down. And the edges of that hump 
baitfish congregate. So then the predator fish come in and eat the baitfish. But the baitfish really aren't relating to the, the hump edge. The hump is probably creating an edge of plankton that's attracting you know, photoplankton that are attracting zooplankton. So plant plankton that's attracting animal plankton. And both of those are creating this plankton edge, which is creating the forage fish edge. The shad and the glass minnows are now creating their own edge. And the predator fish are actually attracted to the edge created by the school of bait fish. So there's multiple edges there. And each of them creates abundance. Well, in a business, one of the edges is the point at which the supplier interacts with the customer, a relationship edge. And that relationship edge is where the abundance in the business is. That's where the profit comes from. That's where the surplus comes from. Now, now, now think about what I've, because this is going over some people's heads because you want it to because it requires you to change the way you think. And this is why most people don't understand permaculture. You can't think the way you always have. I've just taken a principle from permaculture used to design a food forest, abundance at the edge, where the seven layers of a forest come together, and I've made it directly apply to the relationship between a customer and the company they're doing business with. Because they're also an edge. And they both directly apply to a hump under a freaking lake with fish swimming around it. Because it's all the same. It's a universal understanding of the way things and society and people and species function. And it's, it's one that instead of being etherical is applicable. You can take it and apply it. Let's look at some of the things in permaculture as they are applied. And, and how much wealth do they create? I want you to think about a swale. For those new to permaculture, a swale is a ditch. It's a very special ditch. It has a flat bottom. Dead level. You put water in it in one spot, and the water goes equally everywhere. It could be 50 feet, or 500 feet, or 5,000 feet long. It doesn't matter. All the water that goes into it, once there's enough to move water, will, will spread out through the whole system and will seep into the land downhill very slowly and hold water that normally would just run off the land or move water that normally would only be in one place and spread it and create an edge like we just talked about. I want you to think about what it takes to create this. So I bring an excavator in. And an excavator on good, deep soil, 25-ton excavator, can put in a 9-meter-wide swale, which has another a berm that's going out another 8 meters. Okay, So you're talking about this huge swath that's harvesting all this nutrient, moisture, water, stopping erosion, and can go about 1 meter a minute linearly. So 60 meters an hour. Converting that to uh, something you guys might you know, be more familiar with than meters, 180, 200 feet swell an hour. It's a big machine in a perfect situation, but it can be done. Little machine in a not-so-perfect situation, maybe we're going you know, a meter every five minutes. 
and maybe a much smaller swale, like we'll have to do here. Shallow soils, lots of rock, very flat, lots of trees that are already there to work around. But either way, what is the wealth? So now we've taken a fossil fuel, a couple gallons of fossil fuel, and we've used it to put this ditch in, just a ditch. If no one does anything, that system will be productive, visually productive. You'll be able to look at it and see productivity there that's different from everything around it, assuming what was around it wasn't done, long after the guy that put it in was dead. Now, if we plant it into a forest, a food forest, a productive forest, maybe a timber forest, but a managed system, and it give it a little bit of maintenance, it can produce for generations for that couple of gallons of fuel. How much energy did it take to make the excavator? I'm sorry, the excavator didn't get buried in the swale. It went and did something else. There's a fraction of that energy that goes into that energy audit. That machine, if well cared for, can run for 20 years or more and put in thousands of swales, ponds, lakes, build roads, do all kinds of shit. It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. That machine already exists. I could do it with human labor. But it makes more sense in the current situation to use the tool that's there. To do it fast and effective and get it established. But what's the, what's the value of a thousand foot long swale completely covered, big long strip through a piece of land in productivity that will last longer than you will? What's the wealth? Now that's real abundance. That's real abundance. It's lasting. What's the value of that system that once established with, you know, support trees and long-term trees and edge plantings and herbs and vines and all of the layers of a forest that five years into it, it becomes largely self-sustaining and it never decreases in fertility. It never loses topsoil. Its topsoil losses are in ounces and its gains are in tons per year. The diversity continues to grow. Biodiversity. The edge continues to grow. And it starts to spread itself all by itself. This was done in the desert and nobody even planted it. They just put swales in to stop dirt from blowing over the roads. And you go out and look at these things today with soil in the middle of the desert building in these swale systems. Still in place since the 1930s in one of the worst environments. What if you put them in a little bit of marginal environment versus one of the worst? Or to buy an environment that's relatively easy to create abundance in. What's, I, I don't want you to just think a swale's magical. I just want you to ask yourself, what is the wealth created by digging a ditch when we do it the right way with design science? How much wealth is in a tree? A 50-year-old straight oak that can be cut for timber. What's the value of that tree? It's not that we can never cut a tree down. So we just can't cut them all down all the time. What's, what's that tree worth for timber? It's, it's most basic end of life use. How much biomass did it create during those 50 years though? Every time the leaves and mass drop. If it's something like a bur oak that produces an acorn that's actually a valuable food source, how many tons of acorns does a 50 year old oak tree produce? Maybe it's not time to timber that tree. Maybe it's time to timber that tree at a hundred years. Between its 50th and 100th year, how many tons of it? And if you don't want to eat acorns, maybe pigs do. What's the value in hog feed from that oak tree? What's the value of a pond? 
quarter acres of water, 12 feet deep at its deepest point, millions of gallons of fresh water that can be used to swim in, to grow fish in, to irrigate with, to be beautiful. What is the value of that? And it's four days of work for a big excavator in the right environment. How much wealth is created by that machine digging a hole and a, and, a, and a dam wall and driving back and forth on top of it for days, for four days, and it goes away to do something else? How much wealth is in a system with a hundred of those oak trees, four of those ponds, and ten of those swales? Not just today, not just in five years, but over 50 years or 100 years. If we did this on 100,000 properties in the United States, just 100,000, that's not that many, ranging in size from a half of an acre to 100 acres. How much abundance is created? How much security is created? And if you started doing it at that level... How many others would want to do it too? And if you built a business this way and it became successful enough just to provide for your family, like this one has, how many other businesses might it create? I'm not bragging here, but I'm, I'm giving you results. I'm telling you well over 100 people in this audience have businesses that either partially or fully support them, inspired by the work that we've done in realizing, hey, it works. And I'll tell you what, I've met enough people doing it that I know that most of them are doing it, even if they don't think about it this way, with the ethics and the prime directive. They're taking responsibility for themselves. They're taking care of the edges, their customers. They're not harming anyone, and they're putting their surplus back to do good things at their own discretion, not what somebody else tells them is a good thing to do. It works because it creates a natural desire for others to have it. If you want to hook somebody on it, all you have to do is just, that's why it's most known for food and agriculture, because all you, because that you can show them. And they'll understand it. that tree's growing there, and there's a bunch of stuff on it that I like to eat. It's a little harder for them to get their head around that this business was built that way. But if you're transparent in what you do and you don't hide it, sooner or later they get it. What is the value of these things? And what we need to understand, and this is the other reason we're most known for food, all wealth in the world comes from natural systems, comes from the earth. There is no wealth that can be created without a natural system. And I challenge you to give me one example. And I don't even have to like tear down phony institutions like the Federal Reserve and the artificial banking that creates value in a piece of paper that's intrinsically worthless. Even if the, that system derives its value from natural systems. That's why the phony paper has value because they put somebody's picture and numbers on it. If there was not a, if there was not farmland in this nation and there was not the ability to extract natural resources and grow timber and provide water and all of those things, that paper would be fundamentally worthless. A person who simply consults and does a really good job and never actually 
hands anybody a piece of paper or uses a pencil and just looks, observes, and says, do this and it'll get better. Whatever, whoever he's advising will be using at some level a, a resource derived from a natural system to do that. And if that person wasn't eating every day, they'd fall over dead and wouldn't be able to consult. All wealth comes from the earth. That's not environmental hippie crap. It's a statement of fact. Show me wealth that does not come from the earth. That somewhere in its chain of production or utilization doesn't go back to the fact that we have green grass, blue sky, and trees. And there isn't one. Show me wealth on the moon. Show me wealth on the moon. Go there and create wealth, but we'll just beam you there. Go ahead, do it. Well, your freaking face will explode and you'll die immediately. The only place I could send you where you could create abundance and wealth would have to be another planet that has natural systems in place that provide for your basic existence. If you did it on the moon or you did it on Mars through terraforming, you'd have to take resources from here to seed it. All wealth comes from the earth. That's why we have to care for it. That's why we can't damage it. We can't destroy it. And all abundance comes from the edges. And the edges are where we other interact with other individuals, other beings. That's why we can't harm people. It's really simple. And it results in massive abundance. The beauty of the agricultural systems is it shows that to us. I mean, another question we have to ask, if we're really going to understand this, what is the value of an hour of human labor? What is, what is a human being really worth? We've been devalued by machines that can do more than we can with less than we require. But again, it's all because we could cheat. Why does silver have value? Why is silver worth more than copper? In a large, to a large degree, they do a lot of the same things. Silver's a better conductor, has a little bit better of uh, performance for making electronics, but we can pretty much make any real electronic we really need using copper. And some of the state-of-the-art stuff that we're doing today, silver is necessary. Inelastic demand, as they call it. But let's just dial it back to 100 years ago. 100 years ago. None of that applied. None of that applied Silver and copper pretty much did the same thing. Silver is worth way more. Why? What's the real reason? It's rarer? Well, there's a lot of things rarer than silver that maybe aren't worth as much. Why is platinum worth more than silver? The damn things look the same almost. Make a ring out of platinum and a ring out of silver. It's not real easy to tell the difference by looking at it. Actually, I think the silver ring looks a little better. Why is gold worth more than silver? Put a gold ring next to a silver ring, I kind of prefer the silver. It's not just aesthetics. Gold is more rare. But is it or is it is it not really that it's more rare? It takes more human labor to extract it. It takes more energy. That's why. It's much easier to extract extract copper from the ground than it is to extract silver. In some ways, extracting silver can be more difficult in some situations than extracting gold, but we have to move a lot more material to extract the gold. And so it requires more energy. 150 years ago, it was human energy that did 99% of the work to do this extraction. And for most of human history, 
the wealth in silver and gold and copper and all commodities was really based on the energy a human being had to exert to make an ounce. So an ounce of silver might have represented a week of human labor. And might have even been used to purchase it. And the person who purchased the labor uh, was able to gain from that labor. And the person who received the ounce of silver was actually able to exist with that ounce of silver for that week of work. Because the energy audit worked out. Now we have giant machines that will tear apart an entire mountain to make one bar of silver. And we can do that in a day. How long will that last? Not just with silver and gold, but with corn and soy and chicken farms that aren't farms. They're more like chicken science experiments. Sooner or later, these systems have to break down. Because they're no longer based on true value, one human being to another human being. It's very hard to victimize a person if value for value is the means of exchange. It is only through systematic dependence that we create a society where people can be victimized. And the very people who are blamed for victimizing one group of people are actually the victims of another. I, I think this is why permaculturists really value off-grid living so highly. It's about security. And it's about creating an opportunity for value-for-value value exchange. Uh, let's think about what happens when you go off-grid. Does it cost more? Yes. Do you have to give some things up? Initially, Yes. Do you generally figure out how to build a very, very comfortable lifestyle? I mean, have you ever talked to someone who really put some effort into off-grid living and had done it for maybe five to ten years and gotten to a point where they're they're pretty pretty stable with it? They went like, "Oh, this sucks. I want to I want to go back to the grid." No, you don't. People that actually build a place like that, they don't ever want to sell it. Or if they do, they think they know they're going to make enough money out to go build something even more awesome, and, but they're going to do it again. And think about why. It's security. It, it really is. One is there's no systemic dependence. You're off-grid. Power goes out. Right? You know, you're producing most of your own food. The grocery store closes for a week. You know, the, 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 the county issues a boil water alert. You have 20,000 gallons of rain catchment. You have a, a well that uses a low-draw pump to give you some gravity feed when you need it. You have redundant uh, energy systems to keep your well running without grid power because you don't have any. You can still take a shower. As long as the TV station still has power, you can still watch TV, listen to the radio. What, what system are you really dependent upon? If you can feed, clothe, shelter, provide your own energy, security, and health and nutrition for yourself, what exactly do you now need the systems for? And the answer is luxury. And when you meet your basic needs without those systems, you have a lot of room left over to partake of luxury from those systems by choice, not by need and desire. What about the fact that most people live with no redundancy in their life? What's your plan if the power goes off? I have a flashlight. <laughs> yeah, that's going to work out really great. How are you going to cook your food? When you create your own off-grid systems... You have to start thinking, okay, well, I generally would cook my midday meal, for instance, in the south would be a great idea to like start using a solar oven. 
you know, we're going to use probably do a pretty big piece of meat or some kind of soup or something for lunch or dinner every day. So one way we'll cook is with a solar oven. Do you know how well that would work for me right now, this very minute? <clears throat> Not at all. So I also think, well, maybe I need to be able to cook with wood. Well, I can only produce so much wood and get so much wood from the areas around me, so I need to make more efficient use of it. So while I might have a big wood stove for heating the house during the winter, I don't want to burn that much wood to make a pot of soup today because the sun's not shining, so I'll put together or build or buy or you know exchange value for value and get my hands on a rocket stove. And, and that's not even enough, so maybe I'll make sure I take all of the waste that we're just composting and start composting it anaerobically inside a couple tanks and turn that into biogas and now I have yet another energy in cooking fuel. And when I'm done with it, I haven't lost anything because what's left in the bottom of the bin is still great compost. So all of a sudden, that, that one decision led to three redundancies and I'm not done yet. I'll also have to learn how to preserve my food in ways that require less refrigeration, etc., And will you give some things up? Well, yeah. Can you figure out a way? Probably. It also eliminates huge amounts of interference. The reason I'm considered doing it with permaethos, a lot of like, hi, I'm from the government and I'm here to inspect and to make sure that everything is the way that it needs to be, goes away. You're not doing things that require permits. You don't have to talk to the people that give them to you. Now, some of you live in states where even when you do that, it's not the case, but I don't. In the first place we would do this, there's, there would be almost no interference for the piece of the property set aside for lessees if it was you do whatever you want with your acre, but there's no electrical grid coming in. Put up a satellite dish, as long as you have your own power, go nuts. You can use a composting toilet, you can put in a lagoon, you can partner up with five or six other people to have a common waste solution. You do whatever you want, but no grid. No one comes and says, oh, you can't do that anymore. The interference that goes away in a community model that's off-grid is massive. And I'll just throw in some things that we could do there. We could have a great big building in the public-facing side of things with a great big laundromat in it where people could bring their clothes to and do that, and that could be on grid. Right? So that would eliminate that need and requirement and move it into a community level. And then we could have a great big power station there where you could do things like bring a couple big batteries in and charge them and maybe have four batteries and swap them out two for two. Maybe someone would even be employed by having their own business of people that don't feel like calling batteries back and forth. And use them like little power cells, basically. And that would be an augment to any type of solar or wind or anything you did individually that you could buy that power, basically, at cost. That would be what, and that's just, I mean, we haven't begun to examine the solutions that could be implemented. But by having power to an area, we would be able to share that power and then distribute it. That's just one idea. And am I saying we're going to do it this way? No, because part of me doesn't want to. I'd like to have the energy to build the systems with that don't require the energy in the future. But one way or another, we're going to do this. And it does eliminate a lot of interference. It absolutely eliminates a lot of interference. Don't need you. Go away. Oh, that's right. You never showed up in the first place, so I don't even have to tell you to go away. That's. I am very big on a belief 
that 90% of the reason problems can't be solved is because somebody from the government feels that they're needed to make sure it's done the way they think it should be done versus allowing people to be creative enough to find their own solutions. And it results in a balanced system. It's very easy to be wasteful. And I'm mindful of the fact that I'm somewhat wasteful in the way I live right now. I have a great big giant keezer. That's a thing to keep beer cold out in my garage. Do I need that? No. Could I do that in an off-grid system? I don't know. Not the way it's done now. There would have to be another way to do it. But I would have to get creative if I wanted that, right? It, it, see, this is the thing. If I move into that kind of a, of a world for myself, I, I don't have to say I can't have that. And that's the problem that too many of the environmental hippie type socialist-minded people that unfortunately don't represent the majority of permaculturists, but the, the outsider looking in only sees those people, right? Those people think you got to, like, this is what you hear in a lot of permaculture in, instructionals. Not everybody can have this. No, that's not the answer, folks. The answer should be, how can we have this? Unlocking the human mind to the potential of how can we do this without being wasteful, without harming others, without destroying the systems? How can it be done? And the answer is probably you can't all be done tomorrow, but it all could be done over time. As I close it, I want to ask you a question. What does it mean if permaculture is not possible? What does it mean if everything I'm saying is just bullshit? That the only way we can survive as a society is to continue to extract resources in excess of our needs, to take from others so that we can have, to destroy natural systems, to not be balanced, to have surplus equal waste and, and redistribute versus return the surplus into our systems. What does it mean if that's the case? We're all dead. Sooner or later, this, the human society in general will go away. Because those things that we are using for this cheat in the energy audit, this ability to live today for and devalue human labor through the use of a stored abundant energy source will go away. It will go away eventually. It cannot go on forever. Even the person that says there's no problem with oil or coal or natural gas, there's no the person that's completely blind, instead of just telling you CO2 is not your big problem, because I don't think it is. I think desertification is your big problem. The erosion, the loss of multiple tons of topsoil per acre per year being acceptable. Monocropping. I mean, there are so many things contributing to damaging our planet beyond some CO2 that it's unbelievable that anybody would buy into But why? You buy into it because we are now in the freaking Band-Aid society, the Band-Aid microwave society. Everything should be quick and instant, and when something's broken, you just fix it by putting a Band-Aid on it. So the, the people behind these, these policy decisions that are nothing but ways to tax you further know that you're susceptible to this and go, it's CO2. Oh, okay, we'll just tax Corbin. And then you ignore all the things that are so much worse. But the person in complete denial of all of it, this says it does not a pro there's no problems. We can pump all the oil we want, we can refine all the oil we want, we can extract all the coal that we want, we can pump all the natural gas we want, and we can just do it the way we're doing, and we can have modern agriculture and modern pharmaceuticals, and there's no problem, and all you people are full of crap. If you sit that person down and say to them, can that go on forever? 
will we ever reach a day, not in the next 20 years, but will we ever reach a day where we don't have any more coal, we don't have any more oil, we don't have any more natural gas? Will that ever happen? They'll say, well, of course. They might say it's 500 years. They might be wrong. I don't think it's 500 years. I think with natural gas, it's probably like 100, 100 and a half years. I'll be dead. My kids will be dead. My grandkids, mostly will be dead. Great-grandkids may be alive. Maybe. Why do I care? Because I have to take responsibility for that of my children, and my children don't stop at one generation. If what I'm saying can't be done, we're doomed. It's a species. Because we'll, we'll run into that sooner or later, and where people that are worried about climate change are right is the climate is altered, and it's getting less hospitable, and it is getting more random, and it is getting harder to predict, and it's getting less stable, and we are part of that problem. But I think the clear-cutting of, of, of massive amounts of the Amazon rainforest the desertification of some of the most fertile places in the world just 150 years ago, the continued degrading of human health, uh, the, the, the creation of population sectors that are so dense there's no way they can possibly subsist and must extract from other locations. I think that all of these things are a far bigger problem than the air you exhale. doesn't mean they're not a problem. So between, I guess you want to call it something that makes sense, a, a decomposing climate. Why do you think pine beetles are destroying millions upon millions of acres of lodgepole pine throughout the United States right now? And ash borers are destroying, you know, millions of acres of ash trees. It's the pine beetle. It's the ash borer. We've always had pine beetles and ash borers. Why are they de they're decomposing? I'll, that's, I gave you the answer. They're decomposing it. You don't get decomposed? Something that's dead or dying. Why don't flies just land on you and lay maggots on your body? Start decomposing you right now. Because you're alive. It's not the maggots' nature to decompose you while you're alive. But when you're dead or very, very sick and gangrenous, it'll start to decompose you. Why don't mushrooms typically grow at the top of a healthy living tree? It's not the fungus's nature to decompose that which is alive, but to de decompose that which is dead or dying. Why do the pine beetles, the ash borers, and the other things that are pests begin the decomposing of our natural systems because they're dying? It's not always bad when a system's dying. Nick Ferguson, I was just at his place. We're watching pine trees die. Not from beetles, just die. Downgrade of his garden because he's increased the fertility so much that they're successing out so that trees that require more, uh, more uh, nutrients can success in. Unfortunately, that's not what's happening to a large part of our society. But even if it was, If it's 500 years before we need to worry about this, we're still doomed unless we figure out how to do it. 
Marvin Martian Space Modulator. By the way, that was the trivia question from last week. One guy got it first. A bunch of you guys got it. It's not coming to save us. The aliens aren't bringing a free energy cube down, and in some ways it might be the worst thing in the world that would ever happen. It would lock up our need to think and evolve as a species. But the good news is I believe it can be done. And I don't think we need a single law passed to get it done. I think it would be very helpful to have quite a few of them repealed. But the good news is over time, a lot of I, th I believe a lot of government will begin to cave in on itself and they simply won't be around to get in the way anymore. This won't be there. Where's the code enforcement guy? He can't show up today. He's too busy. There's only one left, and there's a lot of places to go, and we didn't tell him we were building something, so he doesn't even know he's supposed to come here. So we're just going to build this. I, I think that's the way forward. I don't think that's tomorrow, but I think it's where we're headed. I mean, if there's any upside to the phony economy, it's that as these, these governments crumble, they're not going to have people to send around to bother you when you're trying to build things that are actually sustainable. And sooner or later, the public in general looks at enough sustainability and goes, stop getting in the way of that. That's not tomorrow either. Folks, if you want to go on this journey, you have to have the attitude I talked about yesterday. I dare you. I dare you to get in my way. I'll go as far as I have to to try to avoid all the problems that you people cause for me. But once I've done that, And I start building that which is actually beneficial to mankind. I dare you to get in my way. And it doesn't always have to be, you know, meeting the threat of force with force, or at least not direct force. It's very hard for politicians who have built up and trumped up all this need for environmentalism to really get away with coming down on too many people that are being very, very good for the environment. I mean, we need to be calling press conferences when this kind of shit happens. And we need to be doing things like, we need to get smart. I've talked about this kind of as a joke, but I think it would be a great thing to do. Like, you know, my experience in Montana of designing a public food forest taught me that public works projects are a pain in the ass, and I don't want to do them. But, you know, maybe I get together 10 investors. Everybody throws in 10 grand. It's $100,000. Buy a half acre, an acre, two acres of land somewhere in an inner city area that's, you know, somewhat on the verge of res resiliency and, re you know, coming back. And then buy it and don't tell anybody anything and go in in one day like one of those home makeover shows, permablitz the shit out of it. And then call a meeting with the city and give it to them. Donate it as a city park with enough money set aside for the first year of maintenance. And a system set up already where people can donate money to help support their park. And then tell it, and then say, now tear it down, and just laugh out of it, go, now tear it down, bring your bulldozers in and tear it down now. Go ahead. Smile and shake his hand. Here you go. Here's the keys to the park. This is one way. But I want to ask you, what I want to finish up with today is if we did this, if everybody that could planted a small food forest based on swales and ponds, just that. Just that was all that we did. How much wealth would be created in the next 20 years? Real wealth. Not paper wealth. Real wealth. Back to what is the value of a tree? Not a spindly, gnarly, weedy tree. It has value itself as a pioneer that lays the foundation for these long... No, what is the value of a 20-year-old pecan tree? What is the value of a 20-year-old apple tree? 
More basic, what is the value of one chicken that lays an egg a day on average 300 days a year and will do that for three to five years? What's the value of a chicken? I, I want you to honestly think about that. What is that chicken worth? I mean, do it with, with raw numbers, just with raw numbers, not taking into account the chicken being a fertility cycler, a pest controller, just egg production. Three years, 300 eggs a year, 900 eggs. $4.25 a dozen for organic eggs, probably about right. $318. Financial value of that chicken in egg production alone. Again, leaving out pest control, leaving out the ability of that chicken to do work, to pr provide labor when managed and controlled properly. The chicken's value at the end is a, is a is stew pot chicken. The chicken's value of if we hatch out five or six or a, seven or eight or ten or twelve or fifty of her eggs and produce new chickens with her that also lay eggs and provide meat and provide labor. Just taking it all out. That one chicken's worth three hundred dollars. A chicken costs a dollar ninety nine to buy it as a chick. What's the value now? What's the value of the oak tree? What's the value of the pecan tree? What's the value of the tree that provides the food to that chicken so that I don't have to plant food for that chicken or bring it in? Now, what's the value of a hundred of those trees? How much wealth could we create? How much abundance could we really create? And if we ran our businesses this way, if we started building towns this way, not changing towns. There's plenty of places to build new towns, just voluntary towns. We're going to go there. We're going to do it this way. If you don't want to, don't come. Go do it your own way. Go build your own town. Bye-bye now. Voluntarist. This is what we're going to do. And we're going to do it based on these principles and these ethics and this morality. We're going to do it. Well, we need a permit. No, we don't. We are our own town. We'll create a town and we'll give ourselves a permit. I mean, whatever it takes. If enough people stand up and say, I dare you, and just start doing it, how much abundance can we create? And then this is what I want to finish with today. If we do it, if 50 years from now, This movement continues the growth that it currently has, which is massive, by the way. The, the, the growth in permaculture in the last 10 years has made the growth of permaculture in its first 25 years look like a joke. It really, really has. So if it just continues at, all of the stuff I'm talking about today doesn't come up to that level if it just continues at its current rate of growth. How much wealth would we have in 50 years? And then, how would we choose to best utilize it? Would we squander it? Or would we harness it? Would we leave behind those of us who have built it and passed on at that point and gone through our own decomposition cycle enough wisdom that those that inherit it would value it for what it is? The only way to be ethical going forward, the only ethical decision we can make is to take responsibility for ourselves and for that of our children. And it's not just if we're going to take responsibility for our children that we build these systems to provide them wealth and abundance and security and sustenance. We also must provide them with the knowledge of its value so that they will preserve it or we're not taking responsibility for their existence as well.
And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Yeah.